Hi, I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Rebecca. We're not from Memphis, but we love it. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. How are you, Caitlin? Kidding. I am good. What is what a pro intro. Yeah, that's trying to shake it up or whatever. Yeah, I guess it makes it less professional if I comment on how professional it seemed. Yeah, that was real. That was real professional. All right. We've been practicing <laughs> months on this and we still don't really know the perfect intro, do we? Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to chalk it up to the fact that we don't like try to have this real long thing that we say every single time we just try to get right into it. That's true. Because I think that's how we like our podcasts. Here's the thing is when you download a podcast, it's because you're interested in the topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're not going to keep the people in suspense. We're just yeah. going to dive right into it. And it's like if you've downloaded a podcast, you have a general sense of what it is. Like you don't need to be told for 20 seconds like every single time. Correct. So what is Memphis Type History, the podcast? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Today's episode, I'm really excited about. Me too. It's been a long time that you've been talking to me about this one. (laughs) It's been a long time in the works of me telling you that we're going to do this episode. Honestly, after I I spoke with Carolyn Carrico, she works at the Pink Palace Museum. After speaking with her and learning even more about this guy that we're going to be talking about, if he doesn't already have a movie made about him, I imagine it's going to happen at some point. Wow. It's a crazy story, Um, at least in my opinion. I think it is. Okay, so if you don't mind stating your name and title here at the Pink Palace. Sure. My name is Caroline Mitchell Carrico, and I'm the supervisor of exhibits and graphic services at the Pink Palace. Okay. Wow. So professional. Very, very long title. (laughs) Potentially one of the longest titles in the museum. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do for the exhibits? Do you kind of preserve or do you set up design? So I research, write, design, install exhibits with a team of really awesome people. So, who like uh, Star Wars? Who like Star Wars a lot and all <laughs> geeky things. We're also very into Firefly. Because, <laughs> you know, I think they're arguing about Star Wars behind the door right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, so a lot of what I do is researching and writing for exhibits. So the big project we're working on right now is we're redesigning the entire Pink Palace Mansion. And so wow. I, that has been my project for about three years now. So I did a lot of the research, drafted all the panels, picked the images, and working with our team here to edit everything. And so now everything's in production, and we should install this spring. Okay. So it's really, it's the biggest thing I've ever worked on. That is, I mean, if anyone's seen the mansion. <laughs> yes, it's a. <laughs> it's quite a big space. It is a very big space, and there's going to be some new exhibits, and we're moving some beloved exhibits over there, like the Country Store and the Piggly Wiggly. And for our purposes, we're going to be talking a whole lot about Clarence Saunders. Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time researching that for this. Yeah. <laughs> and we're you. also going to have some new some new exhibits. Like we're going to recreate the first museum in Memphis that was at the Cossett Library downtown. And oh, so there's going to be and that's a, coming here. Uh huh. Okay. So it's going to be uh, in one of the galleries, and there's going to be about 630 artifacts crammed into one room, kind of like a cabinet of curiosities. Amazing. And then the circus is going to be on the second floor of the mansion, and people can walk up the stairs past the Calicut murals mm-hmm. once we reinstall them. Um, I was excited to learn that the circus is moving over, which means the little circus lives on. What are you talking about? The little circus? Yeah, what is that? The little that? circus. The, the guy whittled <laughs> this amazing miniature circus. And where is it? It's at the end of the museum currently. I mean, I've been there, but it's been many years. It's been this. It's in this big glass case. 
I've seen it when it's an actual production, but for the most part, it's standalone because they're like, the circus is under repair right now. Wait, so it's a moving circus that he whittled out of wood? Yeah, I think most of it's out of wood. Wow. He created it to where they're like little robots and it's mechanical and it's giant. Like you can walk all the way around this little circus. You know, it's been, (laughs) it has been many years since I've been there. That's why. Okay. Yeah. It shook my world. So it's, but many people haven't been there. So we should discuss these things. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think I'm so fascinated by it. I think that might be a future podcast on its own. Ooh, I'm excited. Yeah. Okay, then let's stop talking about it right now. Yeah, let's stop talking about it. But (laughs) that's just all to say there are many interesting finds at the Pink Palace. And that's how I even came to want to do the story that we're about to talk about now is because inside of the Pink Palace is a life-size exhibit of Piggly Wiggly. The real reason I'm here is because on my first visit to the Pink Palace, which is probably in 2008 when we first moved here, I, well, one, I didn't know that Piggly Wiggly actually existed. I thought it was a joke that my grandfather made up. I'm not from here. (laughs) That's fair. It sounds made up. It does sound made up. And so we'd always laugh, like, he'd talk about the Piggly Wiggly, and we're just like, ha, 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 Grandpa, you're so funny. And uh, we moved to Memphis, and I realized, oh, there was this real store, and it started here. Mm -hmm. And... Well, I might just go ahead and let you tell the story because it seemed it was, ended up being a little more fascinating than I realized. And this guy seems kind of quirky. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you want to start with? Because he is very, uh, very much an oddity who had a very big personality. So there's there's a, a plethora of things to talk about. Yeah, well, let's just start from how he started the first the first story as we know it. Yeah. Really. Okay. So uh, Clarence Saunders. Uh, when he was growing up, one of his first jobs was at a country store in Palmyra, Tennessee. And so country stores are the kind of the cradle to grave. You could buy anything you want to there. And so he got his start there. And then through a series of job changes, he eventually found himself in Memphis and he worked as a wholesale drummer, which is the person (laughs) who would go to different country stores and drum up business. So he would go there and convince the store owners to buy things. And so the other thing you would do is talk to them about, you know, how to improve their sales and how to better display their products. And as he was doing this, he got a lot of ideas And he decided that he was going to start his own store. So this was a guy who just kind of always had ideas about how to run business. And uh, and he was a good salesman. So Carolyn talks about how he got together with a group of other store owners and started the United Store Company in town. And that's where they did bulk purchasing. They would pool their money and buy a lot of stuff and then divide it up between the stores. Bulk items. Yeah, bulk items kind of. So and what was the benefit of that? So the benefit was is they had to pay, they paid less for the individual because they were buying because they were buying so and much and they money. they okay. kind of created this uh, United Stores they had their own logo and they were all each of the stores was called United Stores but Saunders really thought that the whole country store model was really inefficient because the way it would work is there would be two prices at a country store you'd have your cash and carry price if you walked in and paid in cash you'd pay less money. But most people paid on credit. And so if you paid credit, it was a huge markup because the store owner took all the risk that... Wait, so there was credit even in what era? Yeah, was so this, this was ni- so 19-teens. 
Okay, I didn't realize they had that system even back then. Yeah, so, and this was in the, it's not, you call it a country store, but stores in the cities did the same, did similar things, like uh, a Schwab's downtown was a similar kind of setup. That would have been considered a country store. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they were, I don't think people at the time called them country stores necessarily, (laughs) but they were the same idea where you'd pay more if you paid in cash, you would pay, or you'd pay more if you were paying on credit, you'd pay less if you paid cash. But there was so much risk involved so that everything had a big markup. So what Saunders decided was he was going to create a store where it was cash only. There was no credit. And that instead of going in and telling the clerk what you want and then the clerk getting everything for you, people were going to self-serve. So he created the self-service grocery store. So he basically took the current way of doing things and did it the opposite. Like a lot of great entrepreneurs. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. That's he cool. saw He saw something that could be done differently. And he was able to do that because he was making this a cash-only store. So he was taking out the risk and he was taking out the markup. Oh, so everything was cheaper too. Yeah. So you can make it cheaper. Okay. And the idea was you would walk and he set up his store. It's like you go, if you go to Kroger now, you can pick which aisle you go down. So like, yes. you know, if you're there for noodles, you can just go to the dry goods aisle. He made it so you had to walk through the entire store. Oh. So it was this serpentine. For strategizing, huh? Yeah, so it's this serpentine path. So you had to walk past every item. Oh, so even even more extreme than grocery stores today, where they kind of make you walk to the back to get your essentials. Yeah, there's one path. It was like that, but times a hundred. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, it was one path. <laughs> Smart man. Yes. So you had to go. It's to- like IKEA. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He was like the first. Good, yeah, designer good of the Ikea store layout. Good comparison. Yeah, they make you walk through everything so you see everything and you end up wanting more. And you're and like, more. is there a shortcut? Please let there be a shortcut. And there's just not enough shortcuts. There, yeah, there are shortcuts. But, <laughs> but his store was smaller, so I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as you went, you picked what you wanted. And at first you had to like rent your shopping basket. <laughs> but then he quickly made it to where, you know, you could just borrow a shopping basket at the front. And then when you got to the clerk, the only time that you really interacted with the staff was when you were paying. Mm-hmm. And you had to pay and you took your stuff home with you. And some stores, especially in cities, had had a policy where, you know, you could buy your stuff and then they would deliver it to your house. Well, he did away with that because okay, he was like, yeah, you're going right. to take your own stuff home. <laughs> and so that was, he actually patented the design for a self-service grocery store. And so he's got uh, actually numerous patents because he also patented the store fixtures and really? his refrigerated thing. He had basically designed yeah. how the store laid out. And then he, uh, it got Piggly Wiggly got really big. There's arguments that there were other self-service style stores before, but he was the first person to franchise it and turn it into a really big model that basically fundamentally changed the way that we shop. Because if you think about it, there's very few places you go now where you just, you know, walk up to a clerk and tell them what you want. It's you go through and you do all of that. Yeah. This is like razors. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good point. When he started Piggly Wiggly, did he kind of leave American Way out? Oh, yeah. So actually, so what he did is it's, uh, so United Stores. Oh, sorry. No, it's fine. So what he did was uh, he actually, it's like the United Stores whole thing didn't last for very long. Okay. And what he did was he took what was the United Store on Jefferson and he closed it converted it into the Piggly Wiggly and reopened it as Piggly Wiggly. Okay. And one of the things, another one of his really 
innovative things was his advertising. So he wrote all of his own ads. Have you seen them before? Uh-uh. Oh, they're, they're he's insane. He's self- Yeah, he's even weirder. Th- not weird. He's <laughs> well. That was the wrong word. He, <laughs> he's even more unusual than you might have realized. I, I grabbed a book because there's no way I can remember these off the top of my head. So he came up with all of these advertising slogans and billboards to get people to come to his stores. And before he opened, he actually had a up a billboard that was advertising Piggly Wiggly, but mm-hmm. didn't say exactly what Piggly Wiggly was, so people would be talking about it. Uh, so here's one from an advertisement from the newspaper that he ran that said, uh, Piggly Wiggly, his ears have been slashed, his toes cut off, his eyes punched out, his bones broken, and his face smashed. What? A description of what has happened to the demon of high prices. <laughs> So his whole ad, yeah. So his whole shtick was that uh, you would get your goods cheaper if you went to a Piggly Wiggly, because okay. he was able to keep his costs down. Because since he didn't have to worry about people buying on credit, he didn't have to have you know he wasn't assuming that risk. Yeah. And he probably wasn't paying as much for a service. Exactly. Doing it themselves. Yeah. So he passed those savings on to shoppers to encourage them to come. Yeah. And so the other thing that this inadvertently ended up revolutionizing is advertising because now goods had to sell themselves. So you had to walk past everything on the shelf. So if there's three different kinds, yeah. So if there's three different kinds of canned green beans, you know, the consumer is going to pick whichever one's most appealing to them. So this had a, this had an effect on more than just the way that we grocery shop. Instead Mm -hmm. of having an effect on how goods are marketed to people. Oh yeah. And now there's studies that show even strategies of where people place the cereal boxes. Like, I mm-hmm. think the lower, they pay a higher price because they know the kids are going to gravitate or see those ones, you know? That makes sense. That makes <laughs> that really good so, sense. Man, so we can almost say it's kind of all started with... Piggly Wiggly, Piggly. yep. Yeah. So why did he name it Piggly Wiggly? Yeah, I do not know why he named it Piggly Wiggly. I've actually always wondered. Well, there are several stories. One of the questions I get the most is why he named it Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. Because it's such a weird name. And so there's there's different stories. One of them that he told was that he was driving, he was on a train and he saw pigs wiggling to get under a fence and he thought that'd be such a good, that'd be such a funny name. <laughs> and then there's, there's a, at the same time that, this, so this, he opened the store in 1916. So uh, during this time period, there was a syndicated stories that ran in the newspaper that was called uh, Uncle Wiggly's Bedtime Tales. And so some okay. people speculate that it came from that. And then, but he, there's this quote from him where uh, someone asked him the question and he said, so that you would ask me. So okay. it's quite possible he just completely made it up so that it'd be memorable. Yeah, it worked. But it also made it really easy to find people who were infringing on his copyright because of the name of the store. So there was actually, there were some hoggledy woggledy stores in Missouri that he sued for copyright infringement and won. He won? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. He was able to argue that they had copied his concept and his name. Yeah. And Clarence Saunders made sure to patent the self-service design. So he needed to patent it. Ah. Mm -hmm. And he actually got numerous patents. So, like, the store fixtures was another one that he got. Wait, store fixtures? Yeah, so he franchised it. So what he would do is there was a Piggly Wiggly Corporation, and -hmm. people could apply to open a franchise. And so there ended up being Piggly Wigglies all over the country. (laughs) And people would pay a certain amount of money to operate a Piggly Wiggly, and then they would have to buy the furniture 
from the Piggly Wiggly Corporation because they had factories. Or there was one in Jackson, Tennessee that made the fixtures for the store. Oh, wow. And so, and then uh, I think it was set up so that a portion of the sales went back to the main, to the corporation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people made good profits off of it. So, yeah, it says yeah. there were Piggly Wigglies in California and New York State. All over. Chicago, all over the place. So it grew really fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then Clarence Saunders' part of Piggly Wiggly ended in a very spectacular fashion. <laughs> if you want to talk about that. Yes, I do. Okay. That's part of the fascination of okay, this whole story. So it's kind of a misconception that uh, Clarence Saunders lost it all in the Great Depression. He did, but with a different grocery store chain. So Piggly Wiggly, what happened was he was the president of the Piggly Wiggly Corporation and decided to list, he and the board of directors decided to list Piggly Wiggly stock on the New York Stock Exchange to raise capital. And then this is where I'm going to do my best to explain how stocks and bear raids work uh, because this is how it all came down. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I know. Carolyn had to give me a stock market bear raid 101 lesson. What is a bear raid? I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I was supposed to know already. <laughs> no, no, no. I, ha- I had asked her. I was like, okay, you're going to need to give me a, kind of a one-on-one on this. So here it goes. Saunders announced a new issue of Piggly Wiggly stock on the New York Stock Exchange. It so happened on the same day, a New York State Piggly Wiggly franchise failed. Wall Street speculators saw this failure as a chance to make money on a failing stock. So they planned a bear raid. Okay, so here's where I'm going to kind of explain some stuff. And I'm also going to include a link to this website that I found that explains the whole Piggly Wiggly crisis really well. Okay. Which will be really cool. So show notes are what? Oh, yes. Show notes are memphistypehistory.com slash Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. All right. The goal of shorting a stock is to borrow shares from someone who owns them and sell them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, you borrow stock from someone, and then you're going to go sell them. When the stock declines in price, the shorts buy the shares back at a lower price, make a profit, and then return the stock to the person they borrowed it from. Does that make sense? So I I borrow stock from someone, I sell it to somebody, then the price drops. I buy it back, and I just made myself a profit. Yeah. Okay. In a bear raid, several shorts make a concerted effort to drive the price of a stock down so they can profit from the decline. So does that make sense that it's an incentive? Yeah, so that's in reference to like a bear market, I guess. It means you're showing uncertainty towards the stock. Yeah, because you want the price to go down so that you can make a profit from it. Because bear market is like pessimistic and then bull market is optimistic, I think, like strong and weak. Okay. Yes, bear, yes. Then yes, that totally makes sense. The bear raiders begin selling Piggly Wiggly short and spread rumors pessimistic, spread rumors, that the company was in poor shape so that the prices would start failing Okay, because they want to make a profit from this from the stock. But Saunders took this challenge personally. He found out about it, what they were doing, and he took it personally. And this is where things get, get a little risky. Saunders, in retaliation, tried to beat the Bear Raiders by cornering his own stock. Now, here's what a corner is. A corner occurs... When most of the shares of a company's stock are owned by an individual or single group. Okay, so this traps the bears because it dries up the price of the stock, making it difficult for them to buy back the stock. That puts them in a corner. Then whenever the lender calls for their stock back, the short seller has to do so by the next afternoon, 
regardless of the current price of the stock. So the Bay Raiders are thinking they're going to get a really short, they're going to drive the price of the stock really low, make a profit, but Saunders buys all the stock, raising up the price of the stock, and then the Bay Raiders are left having to fork up a bunch of money to give back to their lender. So it it pays off that he was rich then. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he could just buy all the stock. Except. <laughs> oh. Except it's actually, it was a really risky move. Here's the thing is if a business is doing really well, is if it's really successful, they'll, ba- they'll bounce back from a bear raid. It's no big deal. But because he took it personally, he borrowed millions of dollars. This is Saunders. Okay, I see. To do his corner. Yeah, to do his corner. He borrowed millions of dollars, secretly drained Piggly Wiggly's resources, and used his personal fortune to purchase stock for the corner. So he should have just let it go, really. He really should have, but he took it personally. Okay. And it really, and his corner did work. Okay. So his goal was to get as much of his own stock as he could to corner it, and then make all these bear raiders basically go bankrupt. Where's that money? Yeah. So he actually did it. So he, he really? pulled off his corner. Mm-hmm. And what was supposed to happen was when he called for the outstanding shares of the stock, they were supposed to only have a certain amount of time to do it. But the New York Stock Exchange changed the rules, and they struck Piggly Wiggly from the Stock Exchange, gave people five extra days, which gave them enough time to pull together the shares of stock that were floating out there. What? Why? Like, just because they didn't want him doing it? They got word on what he was doing, and I think they helped the short sellers. That doesn't seem fair at all. Well, yeah, there's a good debate on that. Okay. Um, All right. I probably shouldn't get into it then. (laughs) But yeah, they changed the rules, giving the short sellers five extra days to return the stock. So remember how I said they usually had the next afternoon? Yeah. So the New York Stock Exchange gave them five extra days to find some of the, it was 1,128 outstanding shares to settle their accounts without having to come begging to Saunders. And in the end, Saunders had complete control of Piggly's stock, but he was so deeply in debt, it wasn't worth it. He couldn't get out of it. And it is estimated that Saunders made half a million dollars out of the corner, but that was insufficient to cover his cost. Wow. So, (laughs) yeah. Whoops. It sucks. But not really. I mean, he kind of did it to himself. And people had advised him not to do that. They're like, no, that's not a good idea. But he did it anyway. And uh, like I said, I'll attach a link to that Piggly Wiggly crisis. Yeah. So he owned all the stock, but this wasn't worth anything anymore. No. And so while this was going on, he was building the Pink Palace in Memphis. So he was building this huge palatial estate that's the museum now. Yes. And he, by the when he lost everything, it was closed to the elements, but there were the inside wasn't finished, and he never lived here. So he declared bankruptcy and lost the mansion and the estate, which is... The estate included Chickasaw Gardens and the late Memphis Lake over That's there. That's a huge amount of land. Yeah, he had a go- there was a golf course and a that dairy farm, his. and yeah, it's all his. And so, lost was he it. kind of? Li- I know he wasn't living in this house because it wasn't completely done mm-hmm. yet, but he was living on the property somewhere. No, he had another house here in town. Okay. He had a few different residences here, but over the years, like, yeah. would you say he was? a... I mean, obviously a millionaire. Oh, he was definitely a millionaire. Billionaire? Not a billionaire. Not a billionaire? Okay. Millionaire. A millionaire. Maybe today he would be a billionaire. I'm not really sure what the uh, conversion rate, <laughs> the inflation <laughs> rate is. <laughs> but yeah, definitely a millionaire. 
this was kind of one of his millionaire. It's kind of a millionaire's playground idea. There was going to be a bowling alley and indoor swimming pool within the pink palace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bowling alley, swimming pool, which would have been the place he lived. Yeah, not he would have, like he would have lived here. Yeah, there were going to be a ridiculous number of bedrooms, a ballroom. He had plans to put in a trout stream on the property, <laughs> which I, if you know anything about trout, they would not have lived here. <laughs> So he had all these plans to do, like he was going to put in a refrigerated cooling system in the trout spring with like two pumps to make sure the trout could live. Oh, so he would have found a way for them to live. Oh yeah, no, we found out about that because there was an article in an electrical engineering uh, journal from the 20s. Yeah. We don't have the original blueprints, so okay. it's uh, something that we've been trying to find for pictures years. pictures of what it looked like when you guys moved here? No, but we do have pictures of the construction. Okay. <laughs> so I can send you some of them. That would they're, be awesome. Uh, they're really interesting. And what's uh, uh, the very sad part of the story is that there were people living here when he bought the land. That there were. Oh, like, he cleared people out. He cleared, yes. He cleared some African American families off of here. And there's photos of oh. him, bur- like they burned down their houses to clear them. Oh. Not to clear the people, to clear the oh, houses. Yeah, like right. gave people gave people time to move and then burn down the houses to clear the land. Wasn't the friendliest time of times. I don't feel so bad for him then. <laughs> <laughs> Not getting to live in that house after all that. I know, right? And that was his first grocery store chain. <laughs> Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. So what ended up happening with Piggly Wiggly since we So Piggly bankrupt? Wiggly was okay. Okay. Um, they uh, voted him out as president. <laughs> And Piggly Wiggly is uh, now, it's still operated, but it's run by a different, it's a, I can't remember what the name of the company is, but there's a a group that runs Piggly Wiggly and several other grocery store chains. Okay. So so he, lo- he lost it. Oh yeah, he lost it. He lost, he lost everything. everything. He lost the property too, not just the house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he lost, lost all the property. So what ended up happening is the uh, Garden Development Corporation from Kentucky purchased the land and the mansion at the bankruptcy auction and they subdivided the neighborhood and created Chickasaw Gardens. But they didn't know what to do with the mansion because they had (laughs) this, they wanted the land to build the subdivision, which is one of the first subdivisions in Memphis, but they didn't Wait, Chickasaw is one of the first? One of the first, yeah. Oh, look at that. Because this was, at the time, on the outside of the city. So okay. this was right outside city limits. So is, he was th- like when he was building this. This was basically like out in the country. Kind of, yeah. Okay. And the city limits were a little bit further to the west. So yeah, so this was out there, and so they built this really nice subdivision, and then they were kind of stuck with the mansion too, <laughs> and so they wanted to do something that would be in keeping with the very nice neighborhood that they were creating because Chickasaw Gardens has always been an affluent community and so they gave the property the museum property to the city with the expectation that it would be either a museum art gallery or art conservancy and then they wrote into the contract that it would be only for people of the Caucasian race oh because this was 1920 yeah yeah of course so uh and the city, uh, the Brooks Museum was already, you know, a fully established museum. So we already had an art museum. Okay. The James Lee Art Academy was going strong. So we already had an art conservancy, basically. So what we didn't have, really, was a natural history museum. So what they had was the Cossett Library downtown. And the museum room was 
full to overflowing. Uh-huh. And so they made the decision to turn this into the city's cultural and natural history museum. Huh. So that's so how that's, that's how it went from Clarence Saunders to <laughs> to city museum. Which I guess you guys can I'm glad that it is what it is. I guess we have Clarence Saunders to thank for it. Yeah, it's a complicated man. Yeah. (laughs) Very much a product of his time. And just out of curiosity, I mean, when he was building this mansion, did he call it the Pink Palace? No, so he called it Claw Leclerc. What? Which is a terrible name. It's the name after his three oldest children, Clay, Lee, and Amy Claire. So you combine their names to make Claw Leclerc. And basically almost immediately, people started calling it the Pink Palace. And it's in the newspapers as the Pink Palace. People just started calling it that. that Because Because it is pink. Yeah, it's made out of pink Georgia marble. So uh, from a quarry in Tate County, Georgia. I wonder how expensive this was. I mean, the whole whole mansion made out of the stone? The outside, yeah. the marble? Okay. Yeah, the outside's made out of the marble. And it is two stories. It is. It's actually three stories. There's a basement. Oh. Okay. Do you, do you store stuff in the basement, I guess? Not, uh, not anymore. The whole museum used to be just in the mansion. And then what happened is in the 70s, they built the new building, which we still call the new building, even though it's from the 70s. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got the, uh, when that happened, they closed the mansion to the public and then moved staff offices over here, and then eventually used it for education programming, and then didn't reopen it until the 90s. So the mansion itself has had a lot of incarnations. It went from the full museum to Mm -hmm. staff offices, basically. And so part of the reason that they built the new building was because the mansion was a terrible, or was a terrible place to store artifacts, because artifacts need controlled temperature and humidity. Oh, we'll see that in another. Yeah, so the, that keeps them from deteriorating. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that all museums try to do is keep temperature and humidity really stable. Well, the place that they had to store the artifacts in the original museum was in the attic. And, you know, if you've got an attic in your house, you know, like, the temperature fluctuates really badly. So one of the arguments for a new building was to have a new place to store artifacts. And the original, this kind of gets off of Clarence Saunders, I'm sorry. That's okay. This is so interesting. The first two directors of the museum lived in the mansion. Really? So, yeah, so Clarence Saunders (laughs) never lived here, but (laughs) the first two directors who were women did. So, uh... They had their bedroom was on the second floor, and then but their living area, like their kitchen and dining room, were on yeah. the basement. The so, kitchen, yeah, the okay. kitchen. So the kitchen and the like their bathroom were in the basement, but their bedroom was so on the second floor. So there's a um, a really great oral history interview that our former uh, collections curator did with Ruth Bush, who was the second director, where she would she said that she had a hot plate in, out the window, <laughs> like she kept it on the windowsill so that she could make herself breakfast without having to walk through the museum in her nightgown, because <laughs> she felt kind of weird about it, <laughs> understandably. Yeah. And so they we actually still have their bathtub is still in the basement. So. Really? Yes. Do you have a picture of that? I don't, but I can okay. take one. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Lee Cummins, our first director, she and her husband lived here, and then he passed away. And the obituary says he passed away at home, and since this was home, oh. we assume that he passed away Somewhere. here. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Ruth Bush was the second director, she lived here. But now, 
You guys have hosted so many events here. Surely you guys aren't using the kitchen in the basement. No. Okay. No, no. And part of our new renovations is a full new catering kitchen in the mansion. Okay. To make special events here yeah. easier. Yeah. <laughs> and we still I imagine be... you guys have a lot, a ton. Very many, which yeah. is great. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful <laughs> property. I mean, it really is one of its kind. I don't know of another museum that can host really elegant events and just have a Piggly Wiggly in it, you know? Like yes. It's got, it's, so it's kind of, well, it's so when we were deciding about the storyline for the new mansion exhibits, we decided that what makes the most sense is to move the country store exhibit over there. So we actually are converting our uh, graphics, what was our graphics lab mm-hmm. for the exhibits department into an exhibit space. And we moved our graphic designer over here to where the rest of the exhibit offices are. Yeah. And uh, so we'll have that. So when you first come in the mansion, you'll go into a country store. And then oh, the next fine. then the next exhibit you'll go into is a Piggly Wiggly. So you'll be able to, right there, really compare and contrast the difference yeah. between what it was like before Clarence Saunders' innovation and what it was yeah. after. And then we tell his the story about him and how he lost the mansion. And there's going to be a big graphic explaining bear raids and cornering that will do way better explaining it than I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely, um once you guys have that, we'll definitely update everyone. Uh-huh. And then uh, talking about the history of the museum and how uh, we went from being this, you know, basically a millionaire's playground idea to being the city's museum. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Something else that I've always been curious about with Clarence is there was a mural. It got painted over, sadly, but said Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name. Cool. So, like, what was the deal with? Okay, was so that was trying to, actually like, own his name yeah, exactly. Thing? So that was actually a second grocery store chain. So he, Clarence Saunders yep. Was. So he opened. He was not out for very long. So he went uh, bankrupt, and then he started a second grocery store chain, and he named it. The Clarence Saunders <laughs> oh, stores, and then uh, he was actually sued by the Piggly Wiggly Corporation because they said that his name was synonymous with Piggly Wiggly, and How that odd. they didn't know he couldn't do that. And then uh, the corporation lost the lawsuit, and so that's why he named the stores Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my own name stores. Okay, so he did get that. He didn't leave. No, he did get the right. He did. Uh, <laughs> He did not lose the rights to his name. <laughs> he was able to use them on another grocery store chain. Yeah, Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name stores. And <laughs> that was that was a mural on the side of that building. Did you know it got painted over? No. It did. No. I noticed it. Just yeah, last year. <laughs> I that know. So I know. Upsetting to me. Yes. And that's also another reason why I wanted to do this. This I cannot episode. carry on with this episode. They painted over it. Why do you yes. even gotta tell me that? Because I, I think about it I could just live in often. ignorance. <laughs> yes, painted over. But I do have the photo for documentation. That's why we're doing this. That's part of the reason why we're doing this project, know, Caitlin, is because we're documenting. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, painted over. Okay. But now we know, now I, I know the story behind that sign, okay. which All right. I've been wanting to know. Right. Clarence Saunders Stores was the name of his second grocery store. Are there any other businesses that are like that where we're like... Someone's name? Like it's so, yeah. The only I one I like maybe so. Apple. And then if Steve Jobs started like Steve Jobs Technologies. Yeah, that would be the similar story is if he okay. had... I just want to find a comparison because I don't think there's a lot of founders where you're like. But do we so know tied. a story like that though, where someone lost their company and had to start their name? 
Or start their own. Under their name. Yeah, I, I don't know any. That's what makes it so strange to me. But did people shop at the new store? I mean, how did his non-Piggly Wiggly stores do? His Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name stores. <laughs> yeah, how did those do? <laughs> because the pig is so iconic. They, they and, you yeah. know... They did well. Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name store, just doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> I'm sure they just called it Clarence Saunders. I'm going to go over <laughs> Clarence Saunders. But here's the thing. Believe it or not, they, they had to have done really well because he started building a second millionaire's playground further out east. Oh, really? Wait, yes. where? What is Is it still there? You're going to love this. Ah! <laughs> so he built up another grocery store chain, and that was when he... Uh, built, uh, started building a second millionaire's playground out east. Oh, he wasn't done. Further out east. Yeah, it's actually where Lick German Nature Center is today. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Wait, wait, so everywhere he, <laughs> he establishes himself, it turns into a museum? Uh, it was looking that way for a little while. <laughs> so uh, he built this place, I think he called it Woodlawn. I believe it was Woodlawn. And he was building a second millionaire's playground. And he was a very avid golfer. Mm-hmm. So he is actually a member of the Memphis Country Club. Which okay. is across the street from the Pink Palace. And then built an 18-hole golf course at the Pink Palace, like on the Chickasaw Gardens area. So the that lake... started with him. Mm-hmm. So the lake over here was um, part of the golf course. And so then they turned the golf course into the subdivision. Okay. So when he was out east of that basically Quince Park area, he built another golf course that when he opened it was the longest, it had like the, was the longest golf course in the world at that point. <laughs> and it was, there was, I can't remember all the statistics, but he built another lake for his golf course and he built another huge house. And uh, he went, uh, this time it was the Great Depression. He did not survive. He was also a casualty of the Great Depression. And he ended up losing this estate, too. He actually sold it to Bill Terry, who was a baseball player and manager for the Giants. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And he turned it into a dairy farm. Okay. (laughs) And then through a series of events, it became the Lichterman Nature Center, which is part of the Pink Palace family of museums. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I could it. not love that more. I know. I just like it's tied up so nice and neat. I know. It's just, ah, it's such a great story. Okay. So can you believe after all this, he started a third grocery store? <laughs> I do believe it, actually. Yes. <laughs> and he did have a third grocery store chain after that. So he, And was this after the Depression? This was like, after the Depression. He got knocked down once, twice, and then he's still at it. He's still at it. And he this one was called Kidoozle. With a K? With a K, okay. which stood for Key Does It All. <laughs> and uh, this idea, it's actually something that we see more of today. The idea was to make an automated grocery store where you would go in and you would like take your key, which was really this like big metal kind of box-like thing, and you would put it in by the drawers of what you wanted and it would so like if you wanted canned tomatoes you would stick it in the canned tomato slot and it would punch a thing like punch a hole in your key and then when you got to the checkout line you would put it in and the conveyor belt system it would read your card and then a conveyor belt system would bring you all of your food to the checkout line so it's kind of like it's like like Mm self-service on steroids or it's like you know you're (laughs) you're selecting things but then you don't have to carry anything till the end Okay, I hate the name, but this is obviously an idea before his time. Yeah, Because we are seeing this now. Isn't that... Okay, so that's why I even brought this part up, is because this idea... The guy was an idea guy. You have to give him credit for that. Yeah. 
Uh, it didn't work. Yeah. Very well. There there was a Kiduzel. There were there's at least one. There was, I believe, more but than one. But he built the system to work? Um, it, it worked okay. It? Um, it was, uh, the idea was very much ahead of its time. So the, uh, the technology and the machinery really weren't there. So this had tons of problems. They, yeah. they, it didn't stay open for very long. But yeah, so that one did not, that one did not make him a fortune. Mm. But he basically, up till the end of his life, was trying. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. For trying. <laughs> and he did. I, that mural was up there. I wonder if that was one of his... Yeah. Parent Saunders stores. It was yes. on, you know, it's Lamar because it's right across the street from the Lamar Theater. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, that would have been one of his stores. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, Clarence Saunders, three grocery stores. <laughs> <laughs> and Piggly Wiggly still exists. And Piggly even Wiggly. Not his. Mm-hmm. But, isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, it's only in recent years that we're seeing anything more than a vending machine, you know? Yeah. Like, so, I can imagine it didn't work, but. That's amazing. I had yeah. no idea someone thought of it that long ago and that it was him. That's so cool. Yeah. Maybe we could just um, tribute him and say that the whole future is <laughs> of shopping is because of Clarence Saunders. <laughs> I want there to be an exhibit in the new Pink Palace where they like let you shop with those punch cards. <gasps> well, I hope Danny puts what, that, what you just said in the podcast and Carolyn... We'll take that to um, consideration. What do you think, Carolyn? Consider that my contribution to the suggestion box. <laughs> <laughs> now, does he, does he have family here still? I or? believe so. Uh, okay. I'm not very familiar with their family tree. Okay. But he, he did have another. So he had three children from his first marriage. And then he had um, Amy Claire was born was with his second wife. And his second wife uh, also had a son when they got married, so he had a stepson as well. So there's five different children. So okay. there, I know that there is still family living. I just don't know if they live in town or not. Memphis, yeah. yeah, I wonder. Probably. Yeah, Maybe. and we actually have a few uh, Clarence Saunders artifacts in our collection, but they're not like he had a big gun collection, and so he donated his several of his guns to the museum. <laughs> So after all this, did he, so did he know that it got turned into a museum, the Pink Palace and everything? Was he around when that actually happened? Yeah, I asked Carolyn the exact same thing. There's a newspaper interview from the, I want to say the 50s, where a reporter brought him here and interviewed him about what he thought about the museum. (laughs) And he basically said that we ruined the, the, that the city ruined the lobby no. And then someday he was going to give the museum enough money to fix it and do it right. <laughs> Did he? No. 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 Oh, no. I think he was envisioning more of a wood paneled look in the lobby, less okay. of the uh, or like you know the ornate plaster work that we have now, <laughs> which is a little more in keeping with the mansion. Yeah. I think the the plaster work is probably a better. Uh, I like it. Better call. I think it looks good. <laughs> hey, I do <excited> too. <laughs> So his issues were wood paneling and decor, not that. Yeah. His, okay. Sure. But he did want okay. some pretty sophisticated <laughs> things in there for a millionaire. Yeah, I mean, you know, playground. I guess it's like, oh, no indoor pool. I mean, what are you thinking? Yeah, exactly. Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing this. You're very welcome. Uh, make sure to come to the museum to learn about uh, Clarence and then make sure to make a visit back after the renovations, which should happen. Uh, we'll hopefully be open this early this summer. Already, yeah. Yeah. So Are you, do you still have the um, animatronic T-Rex? 
Uh, Tyra, yes, she's downstairs. Tyra. <laughs> yes, she's on the first level. I wasn't sure if she was just like a... She hangs out with Rollo, who is our um, the, the museum's original animatronic. He's our uh, <laughs> Triceratops, but he is very old. Yeah. And uh, animatronic skin dinosaur skin doesn't last forever so yes. <laughs> so he doesn't he doesn't run it anymore but tyra does so we have them in the same diorama together you can yeah. go read the story we came up with to see who would win in their fight <laughs> uh, only pink palace i love it so okay i can't thank carolyn enough for sharing the story that i found so fascinating when I went to visit the Pink Palace the first time and the second time and third time and fourth and on and on. Caitlin, I hope you enjoyed this story <laughs> as much as I did. I really did. Thank you so much for talking to Carolyn, for talking to me. I've been eagerly awaiting this story and it was everything I hoped for. Yes. All right. Well, thanks again to the Pink Palace and Carolyn. And we plan to come back for more stories because we can't get enough of you guys. So please visit our show notes at memphistypehistory.com slash saunders that's s-a-u-n-d-e-r-s there you will find photos provided by carolyn herself very interesting photos you'll see images of when the mansion was getting built and images of when the land was getting cleared out for the estate um oh you will find a really interesting crazy advertisement because Clarence Saunders did his own advertising and it was ridiculous. So we'll include an ad oh, on there. I can't wait. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Everything you've told me about him means that's going to be it's worth weird to see in it, the show notes. <laughs> it's strange. So yeah, so if you want to see that advertisement that Clarence Saunders created himself, you can also visit the website. So images, advertisement, and, of course, regular show notes and links. Don't forget about that Piggly Wiggly Crisis link. All at memphisopehistory.com slash Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. And I had Carolyn sign us off. So here we have it. This is Memphis Type History, the podcast. We like your type. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. It would mean so much to us if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. Want to be part of Memphis Type History and get behind the scenes content, merch, and more? Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Memphis Type History. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Memphis Type History. Find more Memphis Type History on our blog at memphistypehistory.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as Memphis Type History, and on Twitter at Memphis Type. For all you listeners out there, I just want to send out a quick shout out to our supporters on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You've probably heard us mention it at the end of every episode because we cannot survive uh, after a certain amount of time, uh, unless you help support us, uh, because when the run- money runs out, that means we're going to have to stop. And the truth is, is we don't, we don't want to, um, necessarily stop because there's so much information in Memphis to cover. And you can be one of those supporters for just $1 a month. That's all it takes. It's, it's as little as that $1 a month. Uh, and when, if we get enough of you to do that, we can cover all our expenses. If you feel really generous, you can donate more than that. You can donate up to 1000 a month if you really want to. 
$10, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Memphis Type History. Check out the goodies that you can get for being a supporter. And like I said, with just a dollar, you get something. Moral of the story. Support us. Go to patreon.com, patreon.com slash Memphis Type History. Look at the stash of goodies we have to offer. Decide which one you want most to make your heart the most happy. And just know that your hearts happy make our hearts happy. Thank you.